Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello. Do I still look feverish? You look nicely flushed. Okay, let's go with that. (laughs) You're radiant. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Matthew Iglesias here with Dara Lind and Jane Cosen. Unfortunately, the episode that we did live last week in Austin, Texas, uh, which I happen to think was pretty great. It was a beautiful, ephemeral experience. (laughs) The audio of that has been lost to the sands of time. Uh, So we are back in the studio to record a fresh brand new episode for all of you. And I also want to remind you that we have fresh brand new episodes, not only on Tuesdays and Fridays, but also on Wednesdays. We did one this week. It's going to continue through the Wednesday after Election Day. Very exciting midterms focused stuff. But here today, we're waiting for the Brett Kavanaugh vote. Politics is in a, a bit of a holding pattern. So we wanted to talk about something else that that happened this week with a direct impact on a lot of people. And that is that Amazon, uh, which has become one of the largest employers in America, I think I think number three behind Kroger and Walmart, announced that they are – the way they phrase it in the press release is they're raising their minimum wage. I would say the entry-level wage for warehouse workers, which are the – obviously, Amazon employs lots of different kinds of people. But the people who work in the warehouses get paid less money than the people who design the artificial intelligence. And so the wage for entry-level warehouse workers is going up to $15 an hour. They're not alone among sort of big retailers in raising pay recently. But the $15 an hour target is significant because that has been a point of a lot of left political emphasis over the past three or four years. And Amazon also said that they are going to lobby for a $15 an hour minimum wage, right? So they have sort of bowed to critics. They're raising pay. They've raised pay specifically to this politically salient cut point. And now they are like thrown in with the communists and going to try to raise wages across the board. Obviously, you know, good news for several tens of thousands of people who who work at Amazon and probably for others working for competitors who now have a, a little bit more leverage, but also just a kind of interesting, interesting moment in American politics. Right. So 
The standard argument that gets made against raising the minimum wage, you know, as a kind of statutory thing is, oh, the companies that are paying these employees, they will find ways to work around paying the exact same amount. Even if you raise the hourly wage, they'll just cut hours, they'll cut people. Now with a few days of kind of reaction to this Amazon announcement, which originally came out on Tuesday, we haven't seen that yet. What we have seen and what is notable is that there have been reports of Amazon getting rid of some incentive work that is done for workers. They, uh, there was some eligibility to get a share of Amazon stock, which is extremely right. valuable for warehouse employees who had worked a certain amount of time. There's some confusion about this because Amazon has denied the existence of these bonuses, but some workers in the UK have said that they were told they were no longer eligible for productivity bonuses after like the Christmas holiday. Uh, I would say that if you have a compensation structure that's so opaque that employees think they're eligible for bonuses that you say the company doesn't provide, that's not a great compensation structure. Right. But Amazon now has said, you know, as reports of these bonuses getting eliminated have come out, that they are confident that all workers will see an increase in their overall compensation, which is really interesting to me, given that one of the arguments against, you know, the kind of bottom-based worker condition improvements right. is that it's going to disincentivize excellence, right? Things like raising everybody's wages, make there be less money available for people to get performance bonuses, unionization disincentivizes people to do better than their peers. If they're saying that even the most excellent warehouse worker is now going to make more money, that is a very interesting calculation that they have run. They are not just saying, although they are saying, well, we've talked to our workers and they appreciate the predictability of cash, which makes a lot of sense. They're also saying, we are confident that we're doing the math such that, yeah, we're like restructuring a little bit of stuff to make this work, but everybody across the board is going to make more money. And some of this is, you know, I've been obsessed for years with Amazon's relative unprofitability for a giant and successful company, which is a, an interesting thing. You could, I wrote an old article on this for, for Slate very long. It's called The Profit of No Profits. And something that's happened over the past 12 months is that Amazon actually has started to make substantial profits for the first time in its career as, as a company. Still not as big as you might think, right? If you hear things like Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world, you might think, surely then Jeff Bezos runs one of the 10 most profitable companies in the world. But, like, he doesn't. And it's not one of the 100 most profitable. You know, it's it's not really up there profits-wise. But it has been gaining. And the normal reason that a company resists paying more to a huge workforce is that even a relatively modest wage increase is going to cost you a lot of money and then you will be a less profitable company. But it's not incredibly clear to me that that's something that Amazon cares about in its strategic calculus. Not that they're just nice. They're not running a, a charitable endeavor. But if there is something that they think they can do that bolsters their position over the longer term, this is a company that is very comfortable accepting lower profits now in pursuit of getting bigger and bigger and bigger. That has historically not meant for them being a place that treats its workforce particularly well, but they have invested incredible sums of money in physical infrastructure and typically kept prices lower than most competitors have. 
So something I that people have said to me over the years, every time I made this point about Amazon profitability, is like, well, if they care so little about profitability, like, why don't they pay their workforce more? And now they are, right? Which I think just does go to show that, like, that was a good question to ask all along, but also <laughs> that, like, it really is a company that, like, it's hard to get your mind around, but, like, legitimately, the business strategy they're pursuing is not about maximizing the year-to-year profitability of the company. It's about growing the business. And we are pivoting to a world – I mean, we had a jobs report out today with a 3.7 percent unemployment rate, right? So a universe is emerging in which the ability to attract and retain workers is going to be like one of the hard parts of business. When like in 2011, there was a lot that was hard about running a business, but like getting some people to want to work for you like wasn't really and now it is and they seem to be trying to – you know, like take steps to win at that game. Right, because now it's not so much taking people from unemployment to employment. It's taking people from employment at one place to employment at another place, which is a separate issue and a separate challenge for Amazon. But I think it's it's interesting how at this time, Bernie Sanders, who talked about this a lot this week and also responded to kind of concerns that this might change what is available to Amazon employees. It's interesting how... Now Bernie Sanders wants to reach out to other companies. You know, he's been talking to McDonald's. McDonald's employees have been involved in their own form of labor organizing, especially around kind of sexual harassment specifically. There's been kind of a Me Too movement within the service industry, which for any of you who have worked in the service industry has been long awaited. But I think it's interesting how this is a moment which I think that Sanders and a lot of people on the left see that Amazon has, and I think, Matt, you may have made this point on Twitter or somewhere in the world earlier this week, that it's interesting that while Facebook has been very much like, we need to help get Republicans on board with this and you know bringing on the weekly standard as fact checkers and making sure that everyone can read everything that Breitbart ever does, um, Amazon has decided, like, no, we won't do that. Um, Instead, we're going to work not with Bernie Sanders, but kind of work alongside in the same realm as Bernie Sanders, which is interesting that how these different corporate entities have reacted to political shifts in very different ways. They seem to be responding to criticism from Bernie Sanders, right? Right. That point, by the way, uh, was made by Matt uh, to— subscribers of the Weeds newsletter. So if you did not see that argument, you should subscribe to the Weeds newsletter and read it. Um, But I do want to, I kind of want to focus a little bit on the, I mean, there are two levels here, right? There's the business calculus that Amazon is engaged in, which Matt, you were talking about. And then there is the idea of Amazon as a large company in a political environment where large companies are political actors, whether they want to be or not. And You know, I think that the two of those are connected, but in specific ways. It's not just that they have to be taking both things into account. It's that, for example, and I don't think that this is something that people think about terribly often, but because so many of these massive companies are tech companies that are fighting for a certain talent pool of knowledge workers along the West Coast who are very liberal and in the Trump era are often much stronger in their political or cultural opinions than they might have been 10 years ago, that there is something of a recruiting aspect to this, that the people who are making the AI 
at Amazon who they have always paid much better than they pay the warehouse workers and of whom they're much more solicitous are more likely now to be like, wait, why aren't you paying the warehouse workers very well? Why do we, when we're going out and socializing, have to deal with criticisms that our company is exploitative? Maybe we should be working places that fit our values better. And that's a fight that Facebook has had in a very different way. Facebook is currently going through a semi-public internal fight because its vice president of policy was spotted behind Brett Kavanaugh. The two are apparently friends during the Kavanaugh hearing last week. Google has had with James Damore concerns about whether its internal culture is too politically correct, quote unquote. These are fights that they have to have as employers of people who generally fit a certain mindset, as well as companies that are trying to deal with the bottom line. But Matt, you've also kind of made the argument that there's a strategic business reason for Amazon to be putting itself on the side of you know, not just a $15 wage for its own employees, but also lobbying for a federal minimum wage. Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting idea, right? I mean, I think the notion basically is that like all companies, Amazon would enjoy getting away with paying people very little money if it could. But also that compared to other big retailers, Amazon is the most technologically advanced retail operation in the world. They bought a leading robotics company a while ago. I mean, a lot of what they do is like warehouse shipping and logistics, but they have an origin as a technology company. They're headquartered in Seattle, right? And so Walmart and, you know, other big players in the retail space are trying to get into the online game, work out their their warehouse, stuff like that. But Amazon has reason to believe, I think, that if labor becomes very expensive, they can cope with that better than their competitors can, that they have better robots and more computer programmers and, and a lead in this kind of game. And so a world in which everybody has to pay a $15 an hour minimum wage could be a world in which Amazon comes out ahead ultimately, uh, gains more market share, gains more pricing power. And it's interesting. I mean, this is like, here's, I'm a a punditry graybeard. But Walmart came out in favor of a higher minimum wage way back in 2005, right? And this was a sort of like with this Amazon thing. It was like a you know, interesting news story. People chewed it over. And a lot of conservatives said at the time, like, no, 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 like, you have to understand, like, this is a cynical effort to drive competitors out of business because Walmart is more technologically advanced, has greater economies of scale than mom and pop businesses. And if the minimum wage goes up to $8 an hour, whatever was the subject of debate at the time, you know, it's going to plow everyone under and help further entrench them. The strategy never really got to play itself out. Like, Democrats took the House in 2006. In early 2007, they enacted a minimum wage hike. And then by, like, the fall of 2007, the economy tumbled into recession. Then, like, 2008, 2009 was a disaster for everybody. And then by 2010, 2011, it's like Walmart was already passe and, you know, Amazon was was the future of retail. So it's both a playbook that we've seen before and also a playbook that we haven't really seen before, right? It's like, can you imagine a world in which the economy stays strong and Amazon works with political actors to create a high wage floor that only big companies with super sophisticated infrastructure can actually meet? And also, like, what what do people think about that 
prospect, right? So, like, if, I mean, this is an easy answer for people of the libertarian bent. It's, like, just one more reason why the government should never try to help anybody. But I think it's, like, it's a real question for progressives because there's been a lot of talk of should we rethink how antitrust law works to somehow, you know, go after companies like Amazon. But there are, there are things that big companies can do that small companies can't do. And, like, some of those things are, are good things, like pay people more. I think it's interesting also that we see American policy reflected in large companies on both the right and the left, which is why you see, like, conservatives arguing that somehow someone should break up Google and that there should be, like, massive antitrust laws to, like, break up Google or even limit the power of Facebook because they're mean to them or something. And so it's interesting how we don't just see them as companies. We see them as arbiters of how we live our daily lives. And so it's fascinating how these companies are attempting to respond to this. You know, Jeff Bezos at no time when he was developing Amazon ever thought at some point a Vermont senator is going to get very angry at me and come up with a bill that is going to use my name in an acronym, the Stop Bad Employers by Zeroing Out Subsidies Act or Stop Bezos Act. You know, I don't think that ever came into the calculation when he was coming up with Amazon, but the same thing happened, you know, I'm sure Larry Page never thought that at some point people would be getting very, very angry about what Google results show up when you Google certain people, you know, when he was helping to come up with Google. And it's just, it's a fascinating at the macro level, how these companies are having to respond to not just economic pressures, but political pressures to which they could not have expected to ever have to deal with. So let's take a break and, and then let's talk about Bernie Sanders. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's burrow.com. 
B-U-R-R-O-W.com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Okay, so Jane just mentioned this, but but Bernie Sanders earlier this summer wrote this bill. And what, what the bill would do is it would say— if you are a company and anybody who works for you receives means-tested public assistance benefits, so food stamps, housing vouchers, but primarily Medicaid, you are going to have to pay a one-for-one tax on the value of any benefits used by anybody who works for you. If you think that over in your mind, right, for a little bit, one thing that will come to mind quite quickly is that this legislation is literally nothing to do with Amazon. Right? Like, no relationship whatsoever to the company Amazon or to Jeff Bezos. Like, it is true that many Amazon employees receive public assistance benefits, but that is just a result of the fact that there are a lot of Amazon employees, right? Like, Kroger, Walmart, Home Depot, like other big employers also have a lot of employees on public assistance benefits. Small employers do not have large numbers of employees on public assistance benefits because they are small, but like, Small companies pay lower wages on average than big companies, right? So as policy, this idea would have cost Amazon a bunch of money, but it would have cost lots of people money. But it was called the Stop Bezos Act, and it was framed by Bernie Sanders almost exclusively as an attack on Amazon. And it, quote unquote, worked in the sense that, like, I don't know. Like, Amazon announced this pay increase. A bunch of people, lefty people on Twitter who were mad at people who pointed out that the Stop Bezos Act didn't make any sense were like, hey, like, this shows Bernie was right all along. And, like, everyone who said this bill didn't make sense should print this out on the wall and hang it there. At the same time, like, it, the point holds that the bill doesn't make any sense. Right. Like, can, among we, talk, other can we actually, thing, like, talk yeah. through this bill? Because I think it's worth, like— We've talked on the podcast a couple of times about proposals that, you know, Senator Elizabeth Warren has come up with that are kind of in this vein of, look, I have a critique of American capitalism as it's currently practiced. I want to put ideas out there for how we could make things better that demonstrate that I'm thinking seriously about this and that I'm trying to put meat on the bones of what an alternative would look like that's not just, like, nationalize everything. Right. I think so this is this is theoretically in that vein, but well, I just you know I, this is the weed. So I like I do think it's important mm-hmm. to like talk through the bill, right? Exactly. What, one thing about it is like it characterizes social assistance payments to individuals who work for a company as subsidies to that company, and like it's not true. I, I don't know how else to say it, right? But it's like for example. My son used to be in a private preschool, and then he got old enough to attend the public preschool in our neighborhood. So that's good. And so my family is now using more public services than we used to, which has implications for Washington, D.C.'s fiscal space. But, like, nobody at Vox Media Accounting was like, hooray, we just got this awesome subsidy from D.C. public schools, right? That's that's not how companies work. It's not how anybody talks about public schools. And the critical thing is that Public school, actually, you could imagine conceiving it as an employer subsidy since kids being in school gives their parents more free time. Medicaid is just – like it just isn't a subsidy, right? 
And you can tell it's not a subsidy because if you go to states like Texas, right, where they haven't expanded Medicaid, so low-wage workers don't get Medicaid, you don't see large Texas employers clamoring for Medicaid expansion because that will subsidize them. It does the opposite of subsidize them, right? It gives people more ability to quit their job and know that they can survive for a number of weeks or months without a job. And they they don't like it. Like that's why the Republican Party and the Chamber of Commerce are always pushing for work requirements on these programs to cut these programs. Right. It's like it's the opposite of what Jane was talking about earlier. Like, whereas in the economy right now, we're in a situation where people are choosing not between unemployment and employment, but between one job and another. Business interests don't want to create a world where the choice between unemployment and employment looks about as favorable as the choice between one job and another. Exactly. And if you think about what this bill would mean, right, it's like it would tax companies for employing people in a generous state like Bernie Sanders' Vermont because eligibility for programs is easier there. And it would subsidize companies who employ people in places like Texas. And, like, it's not just that that's not a good idea. Like, that's obviously not the outcome that Bernie Sanders desires, right? Like, there's no way that the way Bernie Sanders thinks the world should work is that all else being equal, companies should avoid locating their facilities in Vermont specifically because Vermont has a generous welfare state. Right. And it's especially, like, something that you would expect that especially a pro-union Democrat would understand because one of the big macro dynamics of the last several decades is companies relocating from states that have relatively favorable to unions labor laws to states that don't and reaping the corporate benefits of that. Now, the tell that Bernie does, in fact, recognize this perfectly well is that when Amazon announced the $15 an hour wage increase, he publicly praised them on Twitter Even though by raising pay to $15 an hour, that should reduce the number of Amazon households who get public assistance, but it won't eliminate it by any means uh, because some people work part-time, some people have large families, you know, blah, 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 blah. But like Sanders, suddenly the whole conceptual apparatus behind the Stop Bezos Act, like he didn't care about anymore. He was just like, this is great news and it shows it's important to fight for workers. And then Bezos, like, Bezos has a very funny Twitter account, which literally follows nobody, but every once in a while tweets on behalf of Amazon. And then he was like, thank you, Senator Sanders. And like, we're going to work together to raise pay for Americans across the board. So hooray, right? And like, it is good that Bernie Sanders is not, in fact, fighting tooth and nail for the details of a legislative proposal that didn't make sense. It was a kind of I don't know how to put it, right? It's like trolling, right? Like he wanted to make a big deal out of how Amazon has low pay. So he introduced legislation that would help make that big deal because if he simply reiterated, and this to a percent is the fault of the media, right? If Bernie had done something sensible, like say, I have supported a $15 an hour minimum wage for years and I continue to support that and I think that Amazon and other companies should pay higher wages and that's why I support this higher minimum wage, everybody would have ignored it. 
Right. Because that's old news. Also, so being you, sensible is not a politically viable strategy. Right. But instead, when you introduce an act using the name of the person you're targeting by saying that there'd be a 100% tax on large businesses for every dollar's worth of government aid that they need, like SNAP or Medicaid or public housing vouchers that employees receive, that does way better. Right. Like, it, it's interesting because— I really think that this is a moment in which Sanders recognized and Bezos recognized that trolling kind of works here. Right. The, the awful so, like, thing about it is that because the bill didn't make sense, everybody wrote about it. Right. <laughs> which, like, then they got their way. Anyway, like, it's fine. It's a fine political strategy. I don't actually want to be one of the, like, naive critics who doesn't understand the game that's being played here. But I do want to, like, triple down on the fact that, like, the legislation did not make sense. And there is something wrong with a world in which, like, the shrewd political thing to do is introduce bills in, like, total bad faith because standing by sensible proposals doesn't get you any attention. So, like, the only way to make forward headway in the current media environment is to do, like, dumb shit. So, okay, I actually do want to be the the bigger critic here because, yes, (laughs) I understand the way the game is being played, but I think that the baseline assumption here is that if you're a member of Congress— Because you're in Congress, you write bills, and so you think of what you want to see happen, and then you introduce a bill as a way to get that thing to happen. And I think that that baseline assumption is wrong, right? Like, Bernie Sanders is someone who gets a lot of media coverage regardless of what he does. And Bernie Sanders has a pretty big bully pulpit whereby he can— express opinions on things without necessarily putting legislative language behind them. And, you know, it's not necessarily a trolling act. I think of it more as a civil society pressure campaign, right? It was singling out in the same way that a labor or advocacy organization will often target a particular employer as a way to make a point about workplace conditions and will focus a lot of public attention on that employer and try to mobilize activists to call them to account, Bernie Sanders was saying, look, Jeff Bezos is a very rich man who employs a lot of people making very little money. That is unjust and something about that should change. That's fine. That's frankly something he could have done without this bill. He could have used Senate floor time to say, to just call out Jeff Bezos specifically. You know, his communications staff, it's not like they're not web savvy. They could have put together a hashtag and a pressure campaign. If they wanted to get— The hashtag could have even been hashtag stop Stop Bezos. Bezos. Yeah. Like, (laughs) if if the end game here was genuinely we want Amazon to pay its workers more money, there are ways to do that that don't involve legislation. And if you wanted to use legislation to do that, then you come up with the legislation that you actually want to pass. Like, either you're using the government because you think the government is the appropriate organ for this, and therefore you come up with bills that you would actually like to see turned into policy because you think that's the right way for this change to work, or you use channels other than government to achieve ends that don't involve regulation. Like, I don't think that it's a terribly good idea to assume that coming up with, you know, backfilled legislative proposals so that you have an excuse to target somebody is the only way that somebody like Sanders could have done this. And I I also think that the, the Warren counterexample is instructive, right? It's not exactly like we are at a place where there are no bold proposals going forward. It's not like Bernie Sanders doesn't have some proposals that are better detailed, even if there are questions about how they would work. Like, 
Bernie Sanders' idea for Medicare for All is a robust policy. Yes, I, proposal. I agree. I, well, I mean, look, the thing about Medicare for All, right, is like whether you support it or not, Bernie Sanders clearly supports it. Right. Right. Like, like that's really like what he thinks the healthcare system should look like, right? Whereas like what's striking about Sal Bezos is that it appeared to be like in bad faith. Right. To well, me, right? That like it's it's not just that like I don't think that that would be a good idea, but like I don't really think Bernie Sanders thinks it would be a good idea. And this is why I think that doing stuff like this makes it harder on fights like Medicare for All because they're really like – you know, Matt, you've joked about the Stop Bezos Act, that it was a bill you should take seriously, but not literally, right? That, that, you know, in the same way that when Donald Trump says Mexico will pay for the wall, it's not like an actual policy proposal. It's essentially an expression of discontent. That's fair. But the thing about taking legislative proposals seriously, but not literally, is Bernie Sanders is currently engaged in an intra-democratic fight about what Medicare for all means. It's a slogan that a lot of Democrats have adopted, but some of them are not using it to refer to a single-payer health system. They're trying to use the same slogan to refer to more moderate things. So if Sanders and his supporters are trying to fight on the Medicare for all front to say, look, what our voters want isn't just something you can label Medicare for all. It's this particular thing. They can't then turn around and say, well, look, our voters don't really care what the details of these things are. They care about the message we're sending. Either you're fighting a policy fight in the Democratic Party or you're trying to come up with a good message about who the good and bad actors in society are and you're seeding the policy ground to get worked out later. You really can't have both those fights at once. That's the genius of populism. Though. It's, I mean, the history of populism has been a large decision on all parts to have the policy fight much later. But so, okay, we should take another break and, and come back to this. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. I think the point you were making about Medicare for All is true, right? But to me, the Medicare for All issue actually underscores this strategy working better than the Stop Bezos bill. Because the Stop Bezos bill is like kind of crazy, whereas Medicare for All, the Medicare for All proposal that Sanders has authored, I should say, is utopian, right? Like you could, I think, do that. We're just not going to. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, Sanders' strategy on that is to say that, look, something we know about the real world is that things that presidents say they want and things that presidents campaign on don't happen 
in like exactly the way that they wrote them down in their campaign documents. And so that what he's doing is like he is staking out a very extreme position on healthcare, right? That like there should be no co-payments, no deductibles. Everything should be covered. It should have – the transition to the government system should happen right away, blah, blah, blah. And he is just assuming that that will exert a gravitational pull on whatever the actual legislative outcome is, right? And that's – that seems reasonable to me as like a thing to try. Obama often tried to legislate the other way. You know, and I think we've talked a million times about Obama's sort of efforts on immigration to like start by doing the enforcement piece that was also going to be part of a compromise rather than like grudgingly agreeing to it. And it's natural that I think a lot of people feel that Obama's legislative tactics didn't work that well. So like now Democrats want to try the opposite thing. But I do think, you know, Jane was alluding to this, right? But the larger partisan context is interesting because Bezos, he owns the Washington Post, right? So Donald Trump has been lashing out at him on and off for a long, long, long time. Yeah. And the company has shown no political sensitivity to that. Right. Right. Whereas it it seemed like – It's not like they're going to just do whatever Bernie Sanders tells them to do, but trying to get Bernie Sanders to yell at them less was like something that they were going for, whereas they don't appear to mind that Trump yells at them. Right. And Facebook does. Right. And I think it's because I think on both sides, they are cognizant of something, but not cognizant of something else. I I want to parse that out a little bit because— Amazon recognizes that where it is based, so with main locations on the West Coast, the policy priorities of liberals and the left will play a bigger role in what they're able to do. And you could argue that Facebook should also have that same kind of policy concept. And yet these are two companies that are both very large and are attempting to work with essentially everyone on earth. You know, I think for both Facebook and Amazon, if everyone on the planet used their services in some shape or form, they would be very happy. But for some reason, Facebook is a lot more receptive to the criticism of the right, whereas Amazon is a lot more receptive to the criticism of the left. And it's interesting because there isn't an alternative to either of them. You know, there's always the people who are like, oh, you should, you know, just get off Facebook and you should develop an alternative to Facebook. But that never happens. And at this point, I don't know if it could. Now, 10 years from now, at some point when you're listening to this on Earth 2, and you're like, oh, remember when Jane Coaston said there could never be an alternative to Facebook? I I will be very wrong. But also for Amazon, you know, Amazon has gotten to the point that the idea of competing with Amazon directly that almost seems like an Leviathan project. But Uh it is interesting to me how these two entities that are both very similar have very different levels of receptiveness to political criticism and how that works. And I think that there's something to be said about the fact that Facebook is really aiming at a specific audience of people whom it views as perhaps being more right-leaning, whereas Amazon, I think, is just like, you know, it doesn't matter your political perspectives. If we have same-day shipping, you'll do whatever we want you to. Hmm. I sort of see it a little bit differently. It seems to me that Facebook 
is a company that is a little thoughtless, right, as a, as a corporate characteristic, right, that like famously early in its life, the slogan was move fast and break things, right? And that referred specifically to like an approach to a certain kind of engineering problems. But I think you see it like time and again from how Facebook approaches issues in life, Like, they introduced this, like, free internet to Burma, and, like, maybe it contributed to genocide. Yeah. And then Mark Zuckerberg, like, went on Ezra's show and said he felt bad about that. So they're going to try to work it out. And not to say that necessarily Jeff Bezos is, like, a better person than that, but he's a more thoughtful person. Right. It is a physical infrastructure business like from day one. Right. The whole origin of the company wasn't like how do you build a website that people can order books from. It was once people order the books, how do you get the books to them? Right. It's like it's a logistics company. So you have to think ahead. Right. For the company to work, you always have to be thinking, well, what happens next? Right. When they make the order, how do we get the books? And they've been thinking about political problems for a long time because they've been wrangling with states about sales taxes, right? And so first, Amazon was all about trying to avoid needing to pay sales taxes and lobbying against needing to do it. And then eventually they decided like that was futile and what they should do is like suck it up and pay the sales taxes but get competitors to also pay sales tax. So they're engaged in this. And I think one thing that they've learned through longtime engagement in politics is that The Republican Party just, like, really likes big businesses and not taxing or regulating them. And that this whole thing about, like, Trump and the Republicans, like, they don't actually need to worry about that, like, it's 100 percent fake and, like, just some shit Steve Bannon says. Right. Whereas Zuckerberg seems to me to take it extremely seriously, right? Like, he seems to believe that there's a possible world in which – Facebook is liberal bias isn't just bad faith working of the refs, right? But that like Republicans might actually do something about that. Like the Federal Trade Commission appointees appointed by a Republican president and confirmed by a Republican Senate might take regulatory action against a large American company. And like I think that's nuts, right? And like Bezos has this right that like an empowered political left might take actions that are bad, for big businesses. And so you should worry about which actions they decide they want to take. But like you can see like Trump says a lot of stuff and a lot of stuff happens in the Trump administration. But like what happens in the regulatory agencies is just what corporate lobbyists want to see happen. And like it has nothing to do with like all this this stuff in the media, in conservative media. Like that's for the chumps. And like Zuckerberg is acting like a chump. So – I think that this is generally true. However, one of the other thoughtlessnesses of Facebook has been that it has been unclear about whether it's a business company or a media company, and if a media company, what sort, for some time now. And while generally business does not come under the substantial scrutiny of Republican regulators, the media industry Because it's taken such a big role in the culture war, we have the attorney general talking about, you know, trying to get state attorneys general interested in the use of Facebook to, you know, suppress certain political opinions. 
I do think that Jeff Sessions is kind of saber-rattling about that, but I do kind of understand why Mark Zuckerberg feels that Facebook is being treated as a de facto conservative enemy in a way that could make him vulnerable where Amazon might not. Wait, but like no business in America has been targeted by more criticism from Republican Party politicians than Hollywood. Right. Right? Over decades, right? Conservatives firmly pretend to believe that Hollywood is a really pernicious influence in America and that something needs to be done about it, right? But when George W. Bush was president, what did he do public policy-wise for Hollywood? He used trade policy to strong-arm foreign countries into adopting intellectual property regulations that were more friendly to what Hollywood's lobbyists wanted, right? When Donald Trump came in with a presidency that is 100 percent about culture war and, like, trade shit, what did his trade representative do? They strong-armed Canada and Mexico into adopting intellectual property rules that do what Hollywood's lobbyists want them to do. And, like, this is something that, like, Hollywood has come to understand over the years. Conservatives 100 percent authentically hate them, and conservatives are 100 percent authentically totally full of shit, right? And, like, the culture war, like, all of conservative politics is, like, just fake, And, like, I think that's something that Zuckerberg doesn't get. And now it's worse than that. Because Zuckerberg is a chump, he hired this Republican operative to be his VP of global public policy who flew to go lobby for Brett Kavanaugh, which now Zuckerberg is somehow saying was strictly in a personal capacity. Right. But, like, he's a Republican operative. Right. And 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 when Zuckerberg asks him— Being a lobbyist is that your personal relationships are your professional relationships. But now this guy—I don't know this guy. All I know about him is that he's a Republican operative. So when Zuckerberg asks him, he's like, oh, man, should we be worried about Donald Trump? Instead of giving Zuckerberg good advice, he's going to be like, oh, you really should. Kevin Roos has done daily updates on, like, what is the most Facebook content on the Kavanaugh thing, and it's— Ben Shapiro, Breitbart. So, like, Facebook is doing this. Like, they are bending over backwards in the face of bad faith criticism from right-wing propaganda outlets. They are promoting right-wing propaganda on their platform. And if the reason that they're doing that is that, like, Mark Zuckerberg is just a hardcore right-winger, like, great, good for you. But, like, I don't think that that's True. I don't think that Mark Zuckerberg's personal politics have changed. I think that he has actually gotten fooled into thinking that there is any universe in which Republicans would hurt his business. But, like, look at Hollywood CEOs. Like, when Republicans are in, they get their taxes cut. They get light-touch regulation. They get foreign countries strong-armed into advancing their interests because, like, Republicans, they just, like, they fucking, like, they love rich businessmen. So— they love them. The thing is that even though professional conservatives complain about Hollywood a lot, most Republican and conservative Americans, when they go to the movies, don't leave complaining, gee, it sucks that Hollywood is so liberal, blah, 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 blah. Like, that is not a politicized experience for them still, for the most part. Oh, except when The Last Jedi came in. Oh, yeah. but yeah. Well, I'm not super sure that a lot of like rank-and-file conservative Americans were coming out of that, talking about political correctness. But Mark Zuckerberg made the decision that it was an important function of Facebook to create an informed electorate. That meant that Facebook became a political experience, and not least for a group of people who honestly would rather not be thinking or talking about politics a ton in their daily lives. People who, whether 
conservative or liberal, usually middle class, usually white, people who think of it as a divisive thing to be talking about with your friends, and that makes the experience of being on a social network a more negative one. That's what resulted in Facebook, you know, radically deprioritizing news earlier this year, that they wanted it to be a less stressful and divisive experience. But it also creates this no-win situation where if you don't want to create an experience where people are spending less time on Facebook and thereby worrying advertisers and making advertisers less likely to spend money on Facebook because it's become this like terrible, negative, soul-sucking experience for them. You want your conservative users to be able to see news that they like and not news that they don't like. That's incompatible with the informed electorate goal, but it's also this no-win situation that Facebook has gotten itself into. I think the more fundamental problem here is that If you're trying to create a social network that makes people feel good about themselves and you're trying to create a social network that makes people aware of what's going on in the world, those two things have to be incompatible because the entire point of privilege at a certain level is the freedom not to have to think about politics all the time. And that has turned, you know, it's the the suburban women who are key to the Democratic surge in enthusiasm after Trump and the conservative women who are now super enthused about Brett Kavanaugh, people who don't think of their lives as being defined by politics and therefore don't want that kind of negativity invading their daily space. Yeah, I I think that it's interesting how um, a lot of people, you know, friends of mine and perhaps uh, listeners a lot of people have looked to Instagram as being like, ah, this is the platform where this is safe and interesting. However, Instagram is owned by Facebook, and recently Facebook has had a big you know, security breach because, again, this is Facebook and that kind of thing keeps happening. But this idea that Facebook for a long time, what it was supposed to be, I think— is a question that I'm not sure if Mark Zuckerberg really got all the answers for. Whereas I think with Amazon, Jeff Bezos clearly at some point was like, we will provide everything to everyone the fastest way possible. That's a pretty good one-sentence descriptor of what Amazon is supposed to be. And now, you know, if you have Amazon Prime, you can get two-hour shipping and you can watch things on your television and you can listen to things on a little device that occasionally hears the things you say and then starts responding to it in a way that's very creepy. But I think that the question of how these platforms have reacted is also a question of how these platforms originally thought of themselves. When Facebook was the Facebook and you could only be a part of it if you went to Harvard or after that if you went to a specific university ah, and had a had a .edu email address, you know, that's different from when it was supposed to bring the news to everyone and then may or may not have helped cause, as you mentioned, a genocide. Oh and so I think that there's really something to be said about how a lot of these problems are because when you aren't quite sure what your company does, your company can do anything. I think the useful counterpoint here is that Jeff Bezos has decided that his approach to media is to own a media company and keep it separate from Amazon, but use the fact that he owns Amazon to promote it, right? Like the Washington Post gets extremely favorable treatment on Kindle, which probably a lot of people don't know because not a lot of people are buying like next generation Kindles, but believe me, it does. And, you know, there are various tie-ins that he's using to promote this other business that he also owns. And yet, while Donald Trump has done a big deal of talking about how 
Jeff Bezos and Amazon are bad because of the fake news Washington Post, that is not an argument that you hear from other Republicans in the same way you hear their concern about Facebook. They appear to understand that Amazon is a business and big business is something that they are generally in favor of promoting, and they're not super concerned that Jeff Bezos also owns a paper whose editorial page is often critical of the president. Right. No, that's true. But then also just to, to pull it back, 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 back to, to business, I mean— I do think that fundamentally what's going on here is not that politics is determining Amazon's pay practices so much as business conditions are driving them to need to raise pay. I mean, because the the business environment is really changing. This is honestly something that I think listeners may not know because it it cuts against some of the politics. But wage gains have been higher over the past two years for low-end workers than they have been for college-educated professionals. So there is real pressure in the kind of labor market that Amazon plays in. And an Amazon-type company does not want to be, and they have never been, a rock-bottom wage company, right? Like before this increase, they were paying less than $15 an hour, but more than minimum wage, right? They were never an employer of last resort and don't want to be. And they need to stay ahead of that curve to be able to get – you know, the kind of workers who they want, the level of diligence that they want from people. What happens next is to say, okay, given that we're going to raise pay, can we make that a political strategy, right? Because it might be that, like, you go to the spreadsheet people and they tell you what we really ought to do is pay people a minimum of fourteen eighty seven an hour, right? And then somebody's like, well, why don't we round that up? Right? Like, if we round it up, that'll be, like, a nice politics story, right? Whereas, like, at 1487, eh. Or you could have some other structure where, like, 98% of people are getting $15 an hour, but you have a tiny group of people who are getting 11 right? There might be some accounting logic to that. But again, you say politically, like, no, we're, we're not going to do that. And it helps, right? And it's also a way of Positioning yourself, and it's something that, I mean, I wonder how many businesses have really thought through how they're going to act if the economy stays strong because the labor market has been pretty persistently weak for almost 20 years now. I'm like 30 – I don't know how old I am, 37. So like the whole time I've been in the workforce except for one summer job, there's been like basically a weak labor market situation. And, you know, since a lot of managers don't have any practical experience with dealing with scarcity of rank-and-file workers. And there's a couple different ways you can you can deal with that. And, like, Amazon is taking one way and they're taking out sort of a, a stand on it. But I think it's going to be tough out there, actually, for a lot of, like, business executives who I don't feel that bad for. It's hard out here for a Forbes 500 CEO. It's, it's tough. True. It's <laughs> tough. So with that, there's nothing tough about recommending The Weeds to your friends, listening to every episode, joining The Weeds Facebook group, subscribing at vox.com slash weeds hyphen newsletter to our newsletter and uh, enjoying all of the, the weedsy weedsness that is out there. I want to thank our producer, Griffin Tanner. Thanks to our sponsors, all of you for listening. And The Weeds will return on Tuesday. Mm-hmm.